0: friends and thanks for coming back this is episode number 45 of no putts given and chris might have a nerf gun but he's issuing important questions to tony straight from the hot tub today plus we're breaking down the top five equipment trends we think we are gonna see in the next five years so guys let's get it
1: no putts given is powered by my golf spy the most extensive reviews in golf before you buy my golf spy 9 million readers do it every year. Check us
2: out.
0: All right. Chris, please uh, brandish your weapon one more time. Here we go. Just in time to meet the new guy. Today we've got Tony, Harry and Chris, but we're also introducing the newest member of the My Golf Spy facility. Bring him in, Harry.
3: All right, Philip, come on in.
2: This is the first time I've ever seen Philip in person.
0: Well, there he is. <laughs> So being careful to social distance. But everybody, this is Philip Bishop. He's the new director of hard goods testing at my golf spy facility. And um don't be alarmed by Chris's nerf gun weapon. Not intended well, hey, for you. Hey,
4: if he's got that, I got my leg. So let's go.
2: <gasps> oh. Well there you go. Well, looks like I already got you. <laughs> yeah, you did. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't
4: even met you yet.
2: Social distancing <laughs> that way. So- yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> Virtual attack. <laughs> We're off to a good start. That's good to see. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Philip, I was going to tell you to tell us something about yourself, but we know a good bit already. So, But introduce us to who you are.
4: Well, my name's Philip Bishop. I live locally in the Hampton Roads area where the testing facility is. I've lived here since 2003. So a little bit of a local helps out with uh, getting the gig. I know a lot of testers who already come into the facility, so that's been definitely a thankful and blessing kind of standpoint and helpful, too, to be, I already have those relationships with those people who come in here on a daily basis. And I've also gotten to know Harry through being an assistant golf professional formerly at Cedar Point Country Club. Harry was a member out there for about two years, so I was able to develop a relationship with him without working with him, and now we're working together, and it's been awesome. So definitely. Uh, ex-
0: Has it really been awesome? How is he as a trainer? I want to know <laughs> the dirt?
4: Well, you know. He's been good. He's been good. It helps when he brings the puppy in, you know, the puppy just boosts morale. So, you know, when, yeah, we're, having a, when we're having a bad day, Puma comes in and the day just gets 10 times maybe better. Maybe I'll
0: bring her by later today, but she's uh, sleeping under my feet at the moment. Oh, that's
4: a surprise. So,
0: yeah. Chris, Tony, any questions <laughs> for Philip?
1: No, I mean, you covered working with Harry, so. Well, yeah, <laughs> that, that's the biggest thing, right?
2: Yeah, I feel like I owe Philip something at this point, so I don't want to ask anything. So I'm I'm good. Got my <laughs> Nerf gun. I'm good. Um, When is our
1: When is our next test done? How about that? Yeah, that's what, what everybody that. cares about.
4: All right. Yeah. So right now we're doing players distance irons, and our goal is to be done the week of the 13th of July. So hopefully get that test data collected and get it publicized. Hopefully the following week.
0: Publicized. That's what I like. That instead you of you like publish, that word.
4: Yeah. Publicized. All right. Cool. <laughs>
0: Before I let you go, you're not getting off that easy. Tell us something weird about yourself.
4: Well, I already showed you the weirdest part of me. so Okay, fair.
0: Yeah, that's so, not weird.
4: Uh, it's not weird, but I embrace it to the fullest. Weirdest part of me, outside of the prosthetic, my foot is backwards inside of the prosthetic. So that is pretty weird. It's pretty oh, gnarly. No,
0: that's So neat.
4: Yeah, it's super cool. So what I did, or I had cancer when I was five. So the procedure they did on me was called a Van Ness rotation plasty, and what they did, I had a bone to, or a tumor inside my left thigh area, and they took that right above, right below my hip, down to right below my knee, took all of that out, and then they took right below my knee down to my foot, flipped it 180, and reattached it to my hip area. So my foot is backwards inside my prosthesis. And it served basically my heel and my ankle served as my knee now inside of the prosthesis. So my foot is backwards. I have all feeling in it, all that jazz. And I've been playing golf since I was 13. So
0: that's amazing.
4: Yeah. Not so, only
0: are you like a work of art. So it's not
4: really weird. But- it's just it's super cool. No, and fascinating. I would say
1: that's, you know, by, by conventional standards, that's it's pretty weird that your foot is backwards in what is generally the thigh area. So correct. Yeah. So, yeah that's
4: different a little weird but functional
2: so yeah you you win all that uh, might
1: trump seven daughters I that absolutely
2: yeah. trumps it yeah that's not weird that's just diff, that's I just, I don't know <laughs> just yeah. a, bad, a series
1: <laughs> of bad decisions
0: <laughs> all right Philip well we won't take you away from your work any longer but we appreciate right. you stopping by and meeting everybody
4: absolutely the pleasure is mine thank you guys see you, see you soon
3: Bill. all right what shit talk did you talk about me
0: I just asked how you were as a trainer, but now I want the dirt. How's he doing?
3: He's doing really well good he's um really taking everything in his stride and and destroying everything that
2: I put in front of him. so it's great so when you say taking it in stride does that account for the fact he has a foot in his knee. inside his that was
3: pieces? no pun intended, but you went there. <laughs>
2: well, I already shot him playfully on, on live, so, so one okay. of the one of the
3: weirdest <laughs> things about him is he. I've never seen him about pretzel. He loves a pretzel.
0: That's what I was going for. When I asked. Like, what
1: are, we, are we talking like like a bag pretzel or are we talking like a a soft pretzel? Just like, like just the word pretzel.
3: It. If he if he could eat the word pretzel, he would eat the word pretzel. It could be soft. It could be a bag of pretzels. It could be whatever he wants, as long as it's pretzel related. He's got it.
0: That's the information I come here for.
2: Maybe that's your question is what's your favorite way to consume a pretzel? Like if you had... Bring him back. I'm
0: just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we're going to jump into the meat of the show today. Chris, um, I hear you issued a question specifically to Tony from the Tub Spy Hot Tub.
2: Yeah, I have a series of questions. So you know, when I want to go to my resident ball expert, I have ball questions like anybody else. And so I'm sitting here thinking, all right, golf balls can get expensive, $40, $50 a dozen or whatever. And it's like... Why wouldn't I just go buy a cheap golf ball, $20 a dozen, whatever the case is. I'm trying to think, all right, is there any reason for me to go down that road and buy a super cheap, you know, Walmart version, you know, whatever golf ball, is there any reason for me to do that? So I threw that question out on TubSpy this week, and but I want to ask Tony what he thinks.
1: So I, I come back with you two questions,
2: right? Ooh. Ooh.
0: Ooh, a question with a question.
2: Two questions. Two questions.
1: <laughs> what do you want, one what do you want your golf ball to do? What are your performance expectations? That's my first question. And then the second question is, do you expect the ball to do that thing every time?
2: What I want my golf ball to do for me personally, I want well-rounded performance, but I need, you know, the quality spin characteristics, like playing on firm greens, hitting shots out of bunkers playing the difficult pins, that kind of stuff. And yeah, I would want it to do it. I guess I asked a buddy this question this week. I asked him, I said, all right, when you buy a dozen golf balls, how many of those dozen golf balls do you think should be basically the same? And, and within the same meaning, let's assume that the same means are also conforming. He's like, well, all 12. Why, why would I buy 12 golf balls? And I said, what if I told you that there was maybe some balls out there where it's eight, nine, even maybe six, half of a Mars. That's impossible. There, there's no way. So, well, might be a way. So, yeah, to answer the two questions. One, I, I want great performance, and, and I would want it to do it over and over and over. Yeah, absolutely. So, I
1: mean, the first thing, right, if you want greenside spin, and when we talk about greenside spin, generally, you know, I, I, I've come to think of that in terms of any shot that, Really doesn't get into the core layer of the golf ball, and I know there's some people think oh, I don't swing fast enough with my driver to compress the golf ball. No, that bit is nonsense. It's about everybody you come across swings fast enough to get into the core. It's really when you when you get around those greens and those you know 65, maybe even shorter, and in where you're not getting much beyond the the cover and that whatever that second layer happens to be where we're talking about greenside spin. And so if you want greenside spin spin, you want that ball to kind of check up a little bit on the green and, and have any sort of play, what we'd call a playable spin characteristic, at that point you need a urethane cover.
2: So that just eliminates-
0: Wait, hold on, wait a minute, why?
1: So basically the simplest explanation I can give you is, spin comes from putting a soft layer over a firm layer. And the example that was given to me, think about like the skin on your knuckle, right? You ever scrape your knuckle, you get that kind of rip that skin off. It's, it's that type of relationship. You have like this, this soft layer over the, the firm bone. Same thing with a golf ball where you have a urethane cover is a softer cover typically. Not all of them. There are some questionable urethane covers out there. But for the most part, urethane is going to be a softer material. Your casing layer, second layer on a three or four piece ball is ionomer. Right, that's a a very firm material and not for anything, right? That's it's basically the same material that's on the outside of a two-piece golf ball. So it's a very firm material. And so with a a tour ball, a urethane ball, you're layering soft over firm, and you're gonna get spin because of it. Whereas with a a two-piece ionomer slash serlin cover ball, you're putting that firm ionomer layer over sometimes a very firm core. Firm over firm doesn't spin. Or as we we talk about like some of these low compression offerings that people love the feel of, like a like a Callaway super soft or Wilson Duo, those are those are the I, I mentioned those because those those are the softest two we've measured to date. In that case, you're putting a firm over over soft, basically like having your bone over your skin in, in our previous analogy, and that doesn't spin either. So if you want that ball to spin around the green, and that's what you hear from Every golfer, like especially slower swing speed golfers, are like, I want this to spin around the green. How do I make the golf ball spin around the green? Well, you start with a urethane golf ball, urethane covered golf ball. That's that's the absolute bare minimum you need if you want if you want spin around the green.
2: So, is there any player, good, bad, or otherwise, that can't benefit from that? So that I mean, I guess that's my question of if we basically have two categories, right? And and we'll just make it super simple. You have urethane covered tour balls that are generally three pieces or more and you have two-piece golf balls that have a serlin or ionomer cover that spin less and don't give you that control around the green if one is superior to the other in terms of performance why would anybody buy the one that has less performance
1: well they're cheaper so
3: all right mike wait can i I just stop you What number are we
2: talking? What defines a cheap golf ball? Like a
3: dozen price
2: wise? Good question. Twenty bucks a dozen, fifteen bucks a dozen, something like that. I mean, you're not gonna get much cheaper than that.
1: Yeah, you're never gonna find I've never seen any evidence of a good ball much below twenty. And you know, people are gonna come back to the Kirkland and we can we can talk about that too with what we've seen with the consistency of a ball where like, yeah, they're they're all right, but no two are, are quite the same kind of thing. So that's, that's where it becomes not necessarily the,
3: the. So 20 bucks and below.
1: Yeah, that, that, that's certainly cheap. So the argument, if I was going to make an argument for playing a two piece ball, an I or covered ball, if you will, is probably a better way to think of it is if you're like every shot you play is I'm going to, I don't care about spin, I'm just going to bump it up and run it up the grid to the green, keep it low, try and roll it to the flag, whatever. Like I'm not trying to hit it in the air and make it stop. A two-piece for sure. And, and some of these, you know, there is some marketing around two-piece balls or, or, on or certain ionomer balls being more forgiving. That's largely due to the low spin properties. Mm-hmm. And again, it's it's not a huge number. And so is it worth being just a, a tick closer to the fairway on a, on a bad shot to, to give up that control around the green is, is kind of where I would make the decision point on on that piece of it alone.
0: So say I'm a baller on a budget and I want to get away with the cheapest golf ball I possibly can that will also do me a benefit. What is the cheapest I can get away with?
1: And this is early. Like we still have some measurements to take, but it depends what you're willing to give up around in in terms of, of consistency, right? There is.
0: I want the best ball for the cheapest price.
1: Yeah, I don't. know that I can give you an answer to that yet. I think you know when you get into like the top tier. How about direct- a
0: range? Yeah, I mean, if
1: when you get into that that top tier direct to consumer brand where you're having around thirty a dozen, you can get a pretty good ball there. Maybe not as consistent as you get from some from some of the big brands. And so I guess you know the one thing I would I would say in and again we're just getting into our diameter measurements, some things to figure out here yet, but. The one thing I, you, know, you, you hear time and time again, golfers saying, "Well, I, you know, when I pay forty dollars, forty-five dollars for a golf ball, I'm just paying for tour pros. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to pay a tour guy's salary." And what I'm finding, inarguably, is, yeah, you're, you're probably paying a little bit, right, to cover the cost of, of marketing, whether that's tour pros or commercials or, or any piece of that equation. But, but you're also paying for Tighter quality control, higher standards, and ultimately a ball that from one ball to the next is more consistent than what you're getting at a lower price point. So yeah, you're paying for performance and you can get performance, you know, 30 bucks, probably the low point. And then if you want that consistency, yes, I guess what I would say for now is that some brands are demonstrably better than others
3: in that respect. I think it's to do with your ability and what you want to get out of golf. Because at the end of the day, I played with a golfer last week and he shot 114 and he was playing brand new Pro-Vs and lost, I think, a dozen. Like, he doesn't need to be hitting a Pro-V. There is a
1: practical limit for sure on ability, right? Right. You know, I think even like once you're into the, the 90s and... Something like that, where you're not going to chase the tour anytime soon, but you're going to go out and in any given day, you're going to hit a handful of good to really good shots. You know, I've, I've talked about this before. I can't. It's been a while, but sort of the idea that any one of us, right, with say a seven iron, maybe we don't hit it as far, but you, Chris, Harry, Miranda. Every last one of of us is capable on any given swing of hitting a shot that is equal or better to what a tour player would hit on one given swing, right? Tour players sometimes miss, average weekend hacks sometimes hit really good shots, and so you know, if you're at the point in your game where, you know, you can go out on a weekend and you're going to hit a handful or two handfuls or in Harry's case, multiple handfuls of really good shots, quality shots, then the ball absolutely makes a difference. So the, the one thing that, that I hate to hear, you know, especially from guys who shoot in the 90s or even sometimes in, in the mid to high 80s, are like, I'm not good enough to tell the difference. Well, you may not be good enough to appreciate the difference. But it's real, right? It is the difference between being a little bit closer to the hole on any given shot. It it definitely is real. You are benefiting from the quality and performance benefits of that golf ball, even if you don't notice it, right? It's it's the argument of like if a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound? Well, to, to the next level. If a tree falls in the forest, did it fall in the forest, right? Yes, like that that actually <laughs> happened. That is a real thing. And, and just because I wasn't there to witness it or I didn't have the right viewpoint or, you know, from one shot. Let me to use t- an
2: analogy and 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 tell me what you would do in this situation. How good of a driver do I need to be in my vehicle to warrant top tier tires on my vehicle? At what point should I go, oh, man, my daughter is not a Formula One race car driver, but appreciates, understands the benefits of certain technologies and how those tires interact with the road and what's safer and what isn't. I'm not sure she could tell the difference between that and a lower-grade tire on the road, but at a certain point, right, once you get past the big wheels and the electric Barbie ride cart down the road and you're driving a real car, doesn't it make sense that everybody deserves a tour-level set of tires on their car? If so, why wouldn't every golfer deserve or benefit from a tour level golf ball, other than the guy shooting 113, losing two dozen, and can't get the ball in the air. I get that.
3: Here's my my rebuttal: Is if you are a golfer that hits maybe five or six good shots around, does that outweigh the a hundred other shots that you're going to hit crap?
1: If you're only hitting six and you're hitting a hundred plus crap, then you're you're not shooting in the 90s if my math is correct there.
3: Right, but what I'm saying is like if you only hit a handful of shots why spend the extra 10 bucks a dozen when i'm only going to hit six good shots
1: that's a reasonable perspective my thinking is you know and, and there are some guys who absolutely don't care and it's fine not to care but if you care right and you want your best shots to be as good as they possibly can be you're probably going to have to spend a little extra on your golf ball and this is this is one thing too where right? and it touches on your point where if you're shooting 100 plus and you're losing six eight balls around it adds up pretty quickly the expense but you know if you're a guy who goes out and buys six dozen at the beginning of the year right and you look at well what what is my actual what is the cost difference between six dozen premium top of the market golf balls and and six dozen tier two and when you multiply that out it's a hundred bucks and when you think about what golfers spend money on, what they're willing to throw at a new driver or things like new new clubs year after year and, and all these other things to chase performance, to me, spending, spending an extra $100 a year on golf balls is not a significant expense within the greater kind of golf financial system, if you will.
2: Yeah, I think the range is very narrow, right? Where you said, okay, let's the people that, that legitimately maybe should buy a really cheap golf ball, you have people way over on one side and way over on the other. You know, they're, they're not very good golfers and they can't get the ball in the air or they're going to hit three in a row into the lake every time or whatever the case is. I get it. That gets expensive to a point. But that part's pretty short-lived, right? Eventually... At some point in time, you start caring about the performance. And if you actually, yeah, if you actually want to get better and see what that looks like, then just like anything else, at some degree, you do start. And and Miranda, this goes back to your question before. Basically, what I heard you asking was, at what point do I start paying for performance and, and how little can I pay?
0: Or what point am I paying for something that's doing me no service at all? Like, is 20 bucks way too much to pay for a really cheap golf ball that's hurting my game?
2: I mean if you're not going to pay 28, 29, 30 for a dozen golf balls then pay as little as you possibly can probably because I think that's probably where where there's a divide, you know.
1: Yeah, I think you know we can we can talk about urethane and surlyn and iron and all this stuff but ultimately golf balls fall into two categories. Manufacturers make golf balls for two categories, right? There, there's the performance category and that that's where you see your your Pro V1s and your tv 5s and tour bx's and things like that the the top of everybody's lineup and then there's the preference category and those are the balls for people who to a degree are willing to sacrifice performance for some preference and that preference may be cost that preference may be feel it may be i want a red ball Titleist doesn't make a, a matte red pro v1 so but that's really the segmentation do you want maximum performance or is there some preference in your in your world that supersedes that and again cost is a to a degree a necessity but ultimately a preference right i, I prefer to spend less than 45 dollars a dozen on golf balls
3: well i think i've solved i think i've solved it buy a good premium golf ball also get a golf ball retriever and just fish the <laughs> shit out that you put into a pond. <laughs> boom everyone's
2: the winner Get yourself an I gotcha ball retriever and you'll save 20, 30 bucks your first round. There you go. And the worse golfer you are, the more you save. <laughs> that's a t that's a shirt, right? There. <laughs> that, <laughs> there's your name. Yeah, right. That's actually how I know I've had a
1: good round is when I don't find any balls. If I, <laughs> if I don't leave the course with more than I started with, I'm like, all right, I must have had a good day. I wasn't looking
0: for anything. <laughs> all right, Chris, did you get your question adequately answered?
2: Yes, I did. I feel good. And and what I'm taking from it, like I said, to, to summarize is if you care about performance, then no, there really is no good reason to go as cheap as possible. If you have a preference for certain things of which price can be part of that preference equation, then perhaps, again, at the end of the day, people are going to make decisions whatever you want. And, and, and we don't ultimately really care what ball you buy or anything like that. But it's more about being knowledgeable about what the differences are and what matters. And Yeah, I think as we roll out more stuff from Ball Lab, that knowledge base is just just going to gain and gain and gain. And and the reality is... We know so much more about golf balls a year and a couple months later than we did last year, right? Like this learning curve is still, for me at least, it's still super steep. And I feel like I'm learning stuff about golf balls every day that that we didn't know the day before. And so it is helpful. It is helpful to start segmenting that stuff. But if you are a, a player that cares about performance, you need to build into your budget a certain amount for high performance golf balls. And there really aren't, there are not there really no two ways about that at this point.
0: As you know, we like to keep you updated on all the happenings at the testing facility, and this week we've released the top five rangefinders of 2020. The Bushnell family of rangefinders made a strong appearance this year, taking three of the top five spots. Finishing first overall, the Bushnell Pro XE. Now, you do find some staples in all the Bushnell products in this year's test, but what set the Pro XE apart is an attention to the smallest of detail. The Pro XE takes altitude and temperature into consideration to produce an insanely accurate yardage readout. Bushnell's optics are unparalleled. In the number 2 spot, the Nikon CoolShot Pro Stabilized. The CoolShot takes number 2 because it is the most stable rangefinder on the market, utilizing the same technology known for making Nikon cameras some of the best. It's user-friendly and easily locks onto targets. In the number 3 spot, the Bushnell Tour V5 Shift. It's got all the same standards as the Pro XE, but is simply a step down in features and in price. The TOR V5 shift doesn't take climate into account in readouts, but it does calculate for slope. Number four, one more step down in the Bushnell line, the TOR V5. It's got the same accuracy, same fantastic optics, but no extra bells and whistles. It does not calculate slope or consider climate like its siblings, but it is the most affordable of the three Bushnells in this year's test. And finally, the Precision Pro NX7 Slope is the best value rangefinder for 2020. Jam-packed with features, the Precision Pro Calculates Slope, easily acquires targets, and has reliable optics in display, and it's currently on sale for $219.99. For more information or links to buy any of these products, visit mygolfspy.com. All right. We're going to move on doing something else uh, kind of fun this week. We're going to break down what we think the top five changes or equipment trends that are going to be taking place in the next five years are. And I'll put the disclaimer on this. That's what we think. You know, but we're gonna break out our crystal balls and sort of try to predict the future. So I've got a number of them written down, five specifically. And the first one I have is: How is 3D printing going to infiltrate the golf equipment world? Oh,
2: I love this one. I do. I love this one because. Go for it. Yeah, sorry. I, I, yeah, I feel like you just said wedge grind to Tony or something. (laughs) You know, fired up. But, 3d
0: printing right.
2: golf so you, three, you can 3D print a wedge right <laughs> yes With <and> any, <laughs> any grind you want <laughs> any grind you want but but here's the thing right so my wife and I have this debate all the time and and she does it somewhat playfully but she's a left-handed female golfer so she is the rarity of the uh of the rarity right and it's like well How come they don't make left-handed clubs for this person? I get all the economic arguments, but this is, you know, left-handed bias and blah, blah, blah. And part of it, she's just, you know, busting my balls a little bit. But the reality is that this could be a great equalizer because you don't have costs with molds, right? If you're 3D printing, it is as simple in some ways as flipping the orientation of the design. You don't need to create an additional set of tooling in order to do that. And tooling, you know, a lot of people probably don't understand this, but tooling is really, really expensive, super expensive. And so when people say, oh, you know, they got all these different iron models in right-hand and they only have one in left-hand. Well, when you look at it like a cost per unit of production, those left-handed items have to be like a loss leader. I mean, it's ridiculous in some degrees how expensive that is. And so to have a viable technology where it could be like, hey, I can get a left-handed club now from any brand or or in this configuration, I can finally hear the end of that argument from my wife. And that would be, it'd be enough. I might buy a 3D printer at this point that might might do hey, my, yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, and doesn't it also lend to it just being the ultimate customization? So even we take the left-handers into the equation and say how you know it levels the playing field there, but then could it change the way that individual clubs are customized for each individual golfer?
1: I think that it could happen, but I think that degree of, of manufacturing specificity is, is way down the road, like decades probably okay. to get to the point They're where
0: not five years. Yeah.
1: I, I don't know that that's a five year thing where, you know, Chris can, can walk into his Delance golf and, you know, Five years out. sounds
0: like a very short amount of time, but think back to like five years ago. That was forever ago. I mean, deflate gate was happening for good sakes. But not in golf.
1: Like, are, are okay. drivers radically different than they were five years ago? Or are irons radically different than they were five years ago? I mean, I think in five years, Titleist, for example, has released one new wedge grind. <laughs> Maybe two. So wedge grinds haven't <laughs> changed significantly.
0: I don't know. So. Harry, what were you doing five years ago?
2: I was in college. You got your driver's license, didn't you?
0: Yeah,
3: I, I was like first year in, first or second year into college. I don't remember yesterday, so I can't remember that far back.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: I think, and I, I believe John touched on this in, in the article with the with Cobra and the 3D metal jet printing, what it allows a manufacturer to do in terms of material placement and, and the ability to save weight because – when you 3D print an object, you don't need the same sort of—you aren't forced to create structures just because everything has to come together a certain way in a casting mold or something like that. So you can you can sort of not print what you don't need, so you, you can save material. And and ultimately, nearly every innovation in golf, if not all, basically comes down to a good idea made possible by an advancement in materials or construction. And so that, that's ultimately what we're talking about here is a, a major change in, in how the driver or any golf club is constructed. Because now you're, you're doing it, this thing is literally just kind of printing it out as it goes versus pouring molten metal into a mold that has to have. You can't have, for example, a hole anywhere in your mold because when you pour your stuff in, it goes right out the hole. And so you've, you've got to you know do something as simple as put material where you wouldn't ideally want it. Otherwise, the, the process can't happen. So I think, again, materials and, and construction methods are everything, and this is this is an advancement most specifically in that construction method.
2: So given the time constraints, right? So there's time constraints on this stuff, right, where I'm thinking in my head, okay, how fast could these companies move without certain constraints are there, right? You have to do it and test it and see how it works and whatever, but like, if they could move as fast as they wanted – To how long would it be before, yeah, I could go in, they could measure certain things about my swing, this, that, whatever, and say, okay, we're going to 3D print you this particular driver based on these specific characteristics for you. And here you go. Because when I think back five years ago, yeah, there's some things that haven't changed much at all. But I look at like, God, look at like personal technology, iPhones and stuff. And maybe it's not five years ago, but it's six or seven years ago. And it's like, oh my word, you know, there have been some really, really significant leaps in personal technology space. And if these companies could run a little bit unencumbered and say, okay, we're just going to go as fast as we can, as quick as we can, and as far as we can, how long would it take them to get there? Two years, five years, seven years, you know?
1: You could potentially see, and again, it's, we talked we talked about this in last week's show where the opportunities for advancement are smaller. So these, the step from one release to the next isn't quite as big You may be able to expand that now because instead of, when you do your prototyping, instead of, all right, we're going to ship this off, the the CAD files off to China, and then they're going to make the molds and make the heads, and then they're going to ship them back, and we're going to see if we like them, and we're going to iterate, we're going to repeat this process. If you have a machine sitting in your building or in somebody else's building five miles down the road, and you can print out your prototype, and and have it ready the next day without any of the shipping stuff and the back and forth there, you could potentially iterate faster just because you're you're not there's no time spent waiting for parts to come and go and, and things like that. So I think there's an opportunity to to not only tweak designs because you don't need materials in certain places anymore in a 3D printed world, but also just the the advancement that comes from, from having what is functionally more time than you would have between releases. All
3: right, I might I might be dumb here, but I don't know too much about the 3D printing. Are they printing a mold and then they, they inject, or they just literally build a club and then they go hit it?
1: They print a head and print it, or hit it.
3: Yep. And it, it's going to feel the same as, it's going to have all the same... Characteristics as one that's already got the mold. So feel and-
1: feel comes mostly from geometry, and then some. Obviously, the materials do matter. And so yeah. you know, if you've got the geometry of a blade, you know, it's it's going to feel a lot like you would expect a blade to feel. And again, there's there's probably some work to be done on the materials front and and tuning that and and being able to use the same type of materials that the golfers are comfortable with or Taking a risk that golfers will adapt to a different type
3: of feel,
2: but you know.
3: so 3D printing is not is not just plastic. It's
2: no, you can't think of it that way. Yeah, and it's that's why I for, think of
3: it, and that's that's why I'm kind of like, what what is this?
2: Well, I think most people do. I think most people do because you know, unless you've been involved in different industries and in different places, you don't really have a notion of what 3D printing looks like, right? So in my head too, you know, working with kids and middle school kids and stuff like we had 3D printers and they go layer by layer by layer and you'd create these little plastic structures that kind of have little stair steps and they're not very smooth, right? And not maybe crazy accurate, but at the end, it looks like, you know, a little race car or whatever the case is. Fundamentally, this is, is a much more different technology in the sense that you're taking metal, right? Right different types of metals, melting it down and then using those, you know, using that material to create, yeah, in layers and in different ways, you know, the golf club itself. But I mean, it's kind of like comparing like an old doctor with a glass on or whatever doing surgery and like robotic surgery. Like you're going to get certain results, but it doesn't look at all the same.
0: Okay. Well, we're excited about that, right, Chris? We think that golf is going to be transformed by 3D printing in the next five years. Yes. Okay. Number two, we think that the direct-to-consumer retail space is now going to include the large OEMs. You're going to be able to order Callaway, Titleist, Ping, a PXG right from their website.
1: Most You're mostly there already. So, I mean, there's just a handful that don't. Titleist doesn't do direct-to-consumer. Ping doesn't do direct-to-consumer. Mizuno didn't. Now they do. So I think, I think we're largely there. What's going to be interesting is to see if pricing models change at all, because that's that's the thing. Like with sub 70 new level PXG now, it's really that difference of essentially selling a product at a that would be you know, what they sell it to a retailer for, almost right. So you you don't have to pay that 30 to 40 whatever it happens to be on a given product percent to the retailer, and so you can drop costs. That's why PXG can sell its equipment for so much less when when there's no retailer in between. And that's why Sub 70 can sell its stuff for for less than other brands. And so that's what gets to be really interesting is if pricing models fundamentally shift because Callaway, if it sees direct-to-consumer competition from lower-priced brands as a threat, then maybe it adapts. Maybe TaylorMade adapts. Maybe it doesn't. But that's fundamentally the difference right now is is direct-to-consumer with a price savings. And that that's really what separates.
0: I'm going to go ahead and loop number three into this one, because number three is that golf retail is dying and they go hand in hand.
2: Yeah, that's my question a little bit too, is it's never as simple as maybe we want to make it seem like it sounds great, right? Direct to consumer. I can buy it right from Callaway. That's great. I guess two questions that I'd want to dive into is number one is like, could we put a number on it, right? So if I take a $500 driver from Callaway and they send that to Dix, and then I go buy that $500 driver through Dix, that's one scenario, right? That's one way that I get it. If I buy it just directly from, from Callaway, how much more does Callaway make on that $500 driver if I buy it directly from them and cut out the middleman? So what is that number, right? When we're talking a wholesale number of you know, whatever it is, 25, 30 points on a driver, right? If that's, call it 350 to $400 is what Dix is buying that for, and then they make the $100, $150, and now Callaway's making that extra $100, $150 on every driver, that can add up pretty quick, right? But on the other side of that, they need retailers, right? Not everybody's going to buy it from their website. So how do they negotiate that without totally undercutting their relationship with the retailer's,
1: You've got to be one or the other
2: you don't think you can do both
1: no I don't I don't think if you're for example dick sporting goods and you you're trying to sell a Callaway Maverick for 500 and anybody can go to callaway and buy it for 350 because they've taken all those those margin costs out that's not viable because in the best case scenario guys are going to get wise to that really quickly and they'll they'll go down to their local dicks they'll try it decide they like it and then go and order it direct so you definitely can't have it both ways. Well,
3: how much oh how much is spontaneous buying? So if you're out with your wife or whoever None you're of out it with, when
1: you're with your wife.
3: <laughs> 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 but if you're out if you're out just shopping in a shopping mall and you go into Dick's and you're like, "You know what? I've been thinking about this for a while. Let's just buy it right there and then." I would love to see the percentage of how many sales are spontaneous or planned. And then I think you might have a better answer of who will go to a website or who will do a Dick's Point Goods kind of model.
2: Well, and I guess it's to me, it's possibly about the pricing model a little bit, but more so about how the OEMs push out and promote these different things, right? So let's say we just keep the price the same. And let's say it's $450 instead of $500 now, but I can buy that through Callaway or I can buy it through Dick's. Obviously, if I can buy it through Callaway, and they can keep that higher margin, they don't have to pay the middleman, right? So that's advantageous for Callaway as a brand. As we've said, it's been advantageous for Sub70 or PXG and able to uh, being able to control those pricing models. They get to keep that margin for themselves, right? So at what point does Callaway or TaylorMade or whomever push more of their emphasis into the retail channels and the retail models, knowing that they make less money doing it that way, as opposed to working things through their site where they know that that monetarily, that has more upside for them, especially as we see companies struggling, right? They're always looking for ways to make more money. We know that the golf industry isn't necessarily a huge money maker; It's not a huge, huge profit center. So as they're trying to find all these different little ways and areas to increase value, especially publicly traded companies, right? Why would they not try to work more stuff through them, through their sites, et cetera, especially as we're seeing the retail channels, you know, struggle.
3: But I think that's the question is if you're seeing them struggle, the retail like Dick's Sporting Goods, are blah, blah, blah. And they go more to the straight off their website. I think they'll the Dick's Sporting Goods of the world will end up saying, all right, if this is a big portion of money that comes out of our our shop, we're going to cut you a, a break and say, all right, we're only going to charge 10% instead of, or whatever against like Callaways and pings and all that stuff. I think if the big retail stores actually drop their terms, I think you'll never happen.
1: If you look at like a Dick's model and you compare what they make in other departments. And again, we saw it a few years ago where Dick's downscaled several, several of their golf departments across the country. Most of them actually, because you're making, like I said, 30, 40 points on the golf equipment. You're making 70 on yoga. What are you gonna try and sell? What are you gonna make space for? So
3: Right, but what about what about the Golf Galaxies?
1: Well, again, I mean that's one hundred percent golf, but it's still one hundred percent golf. It, it it has to exist in, in, as a volume kind
3: of play. Right, but if you have if you have that and you have and the, everyone goes to direct consumer and buy off the website, the golf galaxies the worlds is now diminished and now they don't have a
0: well that's exactly what we're saying, is that number three on the list is golf retail is changing. You're going to see things like Golf Galaxy disappearing.
1: The Golf Galaxy near me disappeared i had one you know half an hour down the road it's gone
3: if they drop their terms will it still
2: remain if who drops you mean like like what they're like margins they're willing to accept yes i think it's already so thin that there isn't, I mean, when you look at the different levels of markup required and then what they need to pay out in order to be profitable, I don't think we're more than maybe a couple percentage points away from it not being viable for them. There's not a lot of room. I think this is why you're seeing green grass accounts dry up. I think in the next three to five years, you're going to see an absence of green grass accounts, maybe other than just things like, you know, balls and gloves, things that people might need to buy on their way to play around a golf impulse stuff or things. that's like, you know, you get to, yeah, same thing. Like why you always got packets of bubble gum and stuff, right? At the checkout registers at grocery stores, like, Oh, I need one of those. Oh, I forgot a glove. I need, I need that, but not, I'm going to go to my local golf course and, and, and buy a set of clubs I think in five years, I don't think that's going to be common at all. I think you're going to see a consolidation of these different opportunities and where people can get fit, right? And the OEMs really, the major manufacturers really stand to gain from that if they can create structures where people can get fit online, like you're seeing Ping do now, or working through other retail channels that look a lot different than the ones right now. If I'm Dix, if I'm any of these major sporting good areas, yeah, I'm going to sell a hell of a lot more football jerseys, camping equipment, yoga mats, athleisure, apparel, stuff like that, and what, cut three, four, five points to sell more golf equipment? Yeah, no thanks. So
0: I think we've debunked about how the golf equipment or retail equipment stage is going to change in the next five years. But number four, we're also seeing traditional marketing channels start to dry up and change. You're not seeing as many newspaper ads or magazine ads and things like that. How are we thinking that golf equipment companies are going to start reaching the masses in the next five years?
1: So I mean, we're already seeing it with social media, right, where you can can talk directly to your potential customer your existing customers right you're you're not only reaching potential customers you're building loyalty among your existing customers you're doing it largely cost-free obviously you have to pay the employees to do the social media and that is becoming a very specialized area but again it's speaking directly to your audience on your terms there's no am i am i paying for an ad in the front of the magazine or the back of the magazine that sort of thing. So I think you're going to see more and more and more of that. And Callaway definitely started this back when Harry Arnett came on board and started doing the various podcasts and and the videos and things like that, where you're creating your own content and you're owning the distribution of it. I expect that kind of is going to be the model moving forward. We're seeing more companies try and do that. So yeah, I think that's where it's at. But Big ads during golf telecasts, especially majors uh, on TV, that's not going away.
2: But I think, like, I asked Harry a question. Like, Harry, when's the last time you read a golf magazine and you were just wowed by a print ad in a golf magazine?
3: Never.
0: Flip past it, don't you?
3: To be honest, I don't even, I don't even read golf magazines in general. So when it comes to ads in there, I don't, even, I don't even look at it. And when I go to the internet, I read all the golf content on the internet because it's right at my fingertips. I don't have to wait for it to go in, come in, or I don't have to go out and buy it. It's just there at my fingertips.
2: So I think that's a consumption question, right? It's like how we talked about this in in a previous episode is the differences in how and when and where and why people consume. Telecast, right? Like, because advertising and media coverage, right? It's ancillary to whatever it's attached to. So, okay, Super Bowl ads, right? Probably not going away. People watch them for certain reasons. It's a, it's a highlight of that. But you know, these people that think that banner ads really move the needle on websites, it's like no, they don't. If anything, they're an annoyance, right? People don't want to see as much of that. They want to see the content, et cetera. And so, I think. In some ways, with the old media, new media, those kind of things changing people, you're seeing a, a huge shift in how advertising and marketing is taking place to things that are more organic, things that are more collaborative, things that are less just, hey, on this page, if you want the top right-hand corner, like Tony was saying, if you want the top right-hand corner, then that's $25 for this little area, or it's you know X thousand dollars for this page and this percentage of the article. I think you're seeing people go about it in different ways, for sure.
0: Okay. The last one I think is an awesome point. And actually, Adam fed me this one directly. He thinks that personal launch monitors are going to be one of the biggest trends in the next five year years, especially if they can get it around the $500 range.
3: Yes. No debate. Me and Adam were saying, talking about this last year when we first did the tests, and we were saying that they're about two to three years out of being, all right. Let's really dig into this category and do a really data driven test. I still think that's true, but that is one of the ones where I'm thinking, hey, I would love a personal launch one that is pretty close to a GC quad, but for 500 bucks. Like I don't have to go and and rent a bay or spend a x amount of money on a GC quad. I think it's just personalized.
0: Can you sort of give us an idea of how cheap five hundred dollars I don't say cheap, but I say cost effective, I suppose. Cost effective five hundred dollars is as opposed to what a traditional launch monitor costs?
3: Well, you're looking at about twenty to thirty grand for a launch monitor, and that's not obscene. If you want like a good launch monitor that is accurate-ish just inside, maybe two grand with a Skytrack. But still, then you compare that to 500 bucks, you go out and spend 500 bucks on a driver every year. So that's more of a relatability to, hey, I'll spend 500 bucks on this to know my ball flight, to know my swing characteristics. It's, I mean, 500 bucks, I think is very, very reasonable when it comes to a personal launch monitor and if it lasts and if it's accurate.
1: And I, I don't think you're going to see it anytime soon.
3: No, I think it could be. Not
0: in the next five years? I
3: think so. I think so. Who does it, right? Because if you look
1: at what's out there now in the $500 space, it's neither particularly accurate, nor is it particularly feature-rich. So I guess you look at it maybe like a Rapsodo or a a Swing Caddy or something like that, where a company... like a Mevo. Well, I get to that. So a company that doesn't compete in the enterprise space is really, I think, the only legitimate opportunity there because... Again, I, I don't think anyone would argue that Mevo is as good as a, a full-blown flight scope or even the, the Mevo Plus, which is kind of in that SkyTrack price range. And the reason for that is one, it's it's very difficult to do, right? Just from a technology standpoint, to cram everything you need into an affordable product. And the other piece of it is, if if I'm flight scope, if I'm Trackman, if I'm Foresight, what is my motivation? to create a $500 product that has an accuracy that has the accuracy that that nearly matches my $15 to
3: $20,000.
0: Well wouldn't your motivation be getting it into more people's hands no, like it would be No, of... because you because no.
3: then your product is is obsolete now. The 20 grand model is now I'm not going to use that, I'm going to use this.
1: Yeah, if, if I can do most of what I can do, right? If if you can give me a product for $500 that does most of what my $20,000 product does.
0: Yeah, but what I'm saying is do most golfers pay $20,000 for a launch monitor? So I'm saying if, if if most golfers could carry something about as big as their phone that gave them all the stats, would they sell more of those units than they do the $20,000 ones?
1: They'd sell more. They would certainly do the volume, but they'll
2: How much does it cannibalize that $20,000 one? That's
1: as soon as if you if you make it so good that it cuts into to the sales of those units, it's it's not worth doing. I don't I don't think
2: I think that's where you get the question. I think that's where it gets really interesting from an economic standpoint is I have no concerns about the ability for companies to advance certain technologies very rapidly. Again, take an iPhone from 5 years ago, 6 years ago compared to what we have now. Take your laptop, take, you know, whatever it is that we consider to be technologically driven and if you want to see really significant advancements. Technology can do that. It can absolutely right, blow your mind in terms of what those advancements can be. My question is, who does it and why do they do it? I think they can do it. I think they could do it relatively quickly. But if I can make a product at $100 and I can make a product that's 98% as good at that as $2, because that's basically what we're talking about here is about a 98% reduction in price. Who has the incentive to do that and at what point does it make sense for a company to to try and achieve that
0: Does this analogy not hit? Because like, you know, once upon a time, computers only existed in places that they could afford the units. They were larger. And then so gradually over time, they made them smaller. They made them more efficient. They made them more cost effective. And now you don't go into a household that doesn't have a computer. And yet the computer industry... Yeah,
3: but they've got better.
0: Right. But what I mean is, is they've made it more widespread so that there you don't go into a household like i said without a computer so are you then not encountering a golfer that doesn't have a launch monitor so you keep yourself relevant because of the necessity
3: i think the way it's going to expand is if a foresight creates a sub a sub company that just caters to the 500 so they get two pieces of the pie without even acknowledging that this is a foresight. This is a bit like Titleist or Acushnet and the Pro V1 and the Green Union Green by Acushnet. So it's under that umbrella, but they've they've gone to a direct consumer and then they've got to their their core value golfers.
1: But again, I mean, in in your example, right? Those are two very fundamentally different products. By no measure does a Union Green golf ball compete with a with a Pro V1 on performance. And so, I mean, if you look, I think I think Mevo is a great example where it was, you know, people who had Mevos, they liked the Mevo. It does a pretty good job for sure for what it is. And people are like, man, I wish they could they could make this a little bit better or bring it kind of maybe in somewhere in between the Mevo and their their more flagship premium models. And they did. It's called Mevo Plus, and what is about two thousand dollars, I believe. And I think for the the foreseeable future, I think. Two thousand dollars is probably the floor for a nearly full-featured launch monitor. That certainly isn't going to give you everything you get with with a, a full-blown flight scope or a full-trackman or, or a GC quad. But it's sort of like I think that is your consumer price point. I think you know if I'm going to draw a parallel. It's probably anybody, and this is maybe going to be out there, but if you look at sort of the DSLR camera space, I guess is probably where I draw the comparison. You have that in Canon. I don't know if it still is, but like the Rebel Ti range, right? The introductory, low price, 500 to a thousand dollars. Anybody can can do it, can use it, can buy it. Not as fully featured as as kind of the next step up. Next step up is kind of what we use around here for the most part. I think mine was 15 to somewhere between 15 and 2000 for the D 500 the Nikon when I bought it. Right. So that's, that's kind of that mid tier. I think that's where you settle like this does nearly everything that the next step does. It's, it's enough for the guy who wants almost everything. And then that next step up is, you know, you're, you're pushing upwards of $10,000 in that space. So the, the steps aren't as great as they are in the launch monitor space right now. So, Conceivably, you could see flagship units come down so that instead of 20, 25,000, they're 10 to 15 for a Trackman or a Foresight. And then that mid range, truly functional, in my opinion, space around 2,000, maybe eventually 2,500 is viable. And then, yeah, you're still going to have the the Mevos and the repsodos and stuff for guys who just want to see a number and maybe don't, definitely don't need club head data, don't need the reliability that you would need to do a fitting or really dial in performance if you're, say, a PGA Tour professional or something like that. But again, a number that's functional and gives you something that you can do something with, right?
3: I think there is an opportunity for a company to come into that space and really, really nail it. It might not be the Foresights or the Trackmans or SkyTracks. If someone came into that space and made a really, really good product for 500 bucks, I think they would clean up. And I don't think think it's that far off. I'm getting inclinations here and there that are saying this company is going to do it. This company is going to be in that space and really take that space and and make it their own.
2: I think what you're going to see too is, and this goes to, I was thinking of the photography analogy before too, Tony, because I think That makes an awful lot of sense. And what you see in those lower-end or mid-end, mid-range cameras are that they'll do one or two things really well or comparatively pretty well. But like you said, they're not as feature-rich. So when we look at our fitting metrics, right, and you go like on True Golf Fit and you look at that and we say, okay, what are the three most important things in terms of getting fit for a driver, right? We look at, you know, bow angle of attack, swing speed, whatever the case is. What happens when the company comes out and says, okay, we have data to support that these are the two or three most important things from a launch monitor. So if you really want to know your swing speed, launch angle, and spin rate, yeah, we don't have any of that other stuff. That other stuff's really expensive, but we're able to get 95% as accurate as a GC quad, but on only these three metrics, and that's what you get for 500 bucks. I think – there's possibility there, right? Cause that becomes that mid range DSLR camera, you know, and maybe it's not 1500, 2000, maybe it is 500, 700 bucks, but you only get these two or three metrics, but it's really accurate within those couple.
1: And that's, that's kind of the ripple, right? Where you're, you're trying to see these, these small devices are trying to do almost everything that a big device does. And so maybe if you say, Hey, we're gonna, we're going to give you just ball speed, launch angle and spin rate, and we're going to do it really accurately but i say that with the caveat and an understanding that the getting spin rate accurately is really really hard with a for example this the small doppler chip that's in the Repsotos and the and the Mevos and things like that and so ultimately until the price of the the supporting technology comes down and TrackMan and FlightScope don't control the pricing of, of Doppler, right? That's Somebody else does that. They buy that <laughs> piece from Doppler. somebody else. Yeah, so yeah. That, <laughs> that that has to come down before anything else can really come down. And, you know, again, we we talk about portability. It has to be small. Well, as a matter of reality and practicality, you, you can't put a big radar unit into a small form factor. <laughs> it's just a... It doesn't fit. And so and again, TrackMan, FlightScope aren't going to be driving these things necessarily unless whoever makes these chips says, hey, yeah, we're going to these technologies, these Doppler devices, say, yeah, we're going to we're going to give you the same features and functionality in a physically smaller device, which I don't know. I'm not an expert on. I don't even know if that's possible. Right. But in, if that isn't possible, if that can't be done, if it isn't done, if there's no incentive to do it. Right. Cause again, these things started out for like big weather stations and, and airports and things like that, where it wasn't a big deal. If you know, you're not going from a, a device that's this big to a device that's this big. What's the incentive to go from giant to this and now down another step with similar functionality? So I don't see it. I don't see it being affordable, portable and accurate. I think some of those three things in whatever piece of the equation you're talking about tug against each other and make it extremely
3: difficult for that to happen in the foreseeable future. I'm the opposite. I think it's going to be there,
2: but that's just me.
0: Well, it'll be fun to see. We've got five years. I'll write this down and revisit <laughs> with both of you five years Let's from now.
2: Set a reminder. <laughs> Somebody tell Siri. Put it in the by time capsule and we'll, we'll bring it out in five years. I mean, years. I've,
3: yeah, I'm saying just, I'm going to want to add one or two more that I've seen. I think rangefinders are all going in five years. Are all going to have GPS layovers on the on the display and optics, as long with with laser. I've seen it with Garmin, and they've doing a really good one. Bushnell, I've done it on the side. Voice Caddy have a GPS on there. I think give five years. I think they're all have it, and then something else will be introduced that makes it better than just the, having a GPS like the Garmin Alpha right now. That's what I see, and I've seen it in the last few years that I've gone towards that. Another one that we're seeing, I mean, tony we're talking about it. It's, might not, it's not technically, well, it kind of is equipment, but we're seeing categories within our categories get informed. So they were seeing a player's distance and a game improvement categories and they're now becoming one in some of those aspects. And the same with game improvement and super game improvement. You're having the looks of a super game improvement but the degree of a game improvement and vice versa. So I think we're seeing more categories getting formed over the years.
1: Yeah. So we looked at. So when when we sit down to to get started on our iron tests, most of the manufacturers do a pretty good job of of sort of laying out for for us and for golfers where where a given iron fits. So they say hey, this is our player's distance iron. This is our player's cavity back. And this is game improvement. And this is super game improvement. And for the most part, when when we Stack all the various products in those categories, they they spec out pretty closely. So, you know, a degree to maybe two degrees difference in lofts, not massive enough to, to matter, obviously, but not massive. And lengths tend to be pretty similar. And we sat down this year and looked at the game improvement category, and I mean, what was the loft range, Harry? It was more than four degrees, right? It was
3: in the game improvement.
1: Yeah, that was the one where we just looked at it. We're like, oh.
3: it was close to four degrees, 3.75 is the difference right now.
1: So, and that's, you know, just seven iron loft we're talking about. So, you know, almost four degrees between two clubs that are theoretically in the same category and they have different, obviously the different lofts, the different lengths. And, you know, we're seeing a huge trend towards as, as there was a segmentation a few years ago between a player's iron and a player's distance where they kind of started out in the same category. And then there was enough kind of momentum and and products available where they split. I think you're going to see, the same type of thing in what is now the game improvement category where traditionally it's been the angle has been more forgiving, right? We, we want a more forgiving club for a golfer who needs more forgiveness. And now we're seeing a bit of that. You know what, but we're, we're, we're going to do a a version of that. That's essentially a more forgiving player's distance iron. So it's sort of like a, a hacker's distance iron, if you will, I guess. I'm trying to figure out how to categorize it, but it is, sort of something that was born from game improvement, but takes on a much more distance-centric design. I think that's, I think we we could see enough of it as soon as next year or the year after before we actually have to test it as a separate category. So that's certainly, there are elements of that that are already here and it's it's definitely coming on a wider scale.
0: All right, let's put our crystal balls away for the day. I think we did a wonderful job predicting the future. Did it wear you out, Chris?
2: We'll see. We'll see. I I know that Tony's good at predicting what clubs are going to sell best, who's going to win certain things like that, and so I'm excited to see what happens. I'll stick around.
0: All right. Five years from now, same time, same place.
3: Still doing no putts given somehow.
0: (laughs) Yeah.
2: (laughs) Harry will still look like he's 18. Yes. Probably.
0: Wouldn't that be nice? All right.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Wow.
3: Wow. Shots fired. I'm
0: kidding. Kidding, kidding. Okay, guys, I'm going to let us finish up for the day. But, of course, another reminder, if you're listening and you like us, please let us know. Subscribe. Tell us in the comments how we're doing. If you don't like us, we also want to hear from you. I know I personally try to read them all just to make sure that we're relating to all of you. But we want to know what you think, so let us know. Guys, until next time, we we out. We out.
3: We
2: out.